Welcome to the first episode of Woeful, a podcast for fiber folk. I'm really excited to share with you some incredible people I've had the opportunity to talk to in this community we love so much. From shearers and shepherds to knitters and shop owners, here's where you get to listen to a little part of their fiber journey. Our first episode is sponsored by Fringe Supply Company. In 2012, Karen Templer opened Fringe Supply Company, an online shop full of thoughtful tools and supplies for the sustainable and aesthetically mindful maker. From bento bags to rosewood needles, you'll get lost in this carefully curated emporium. Visit fringesupplyco.com. Today we get to meet two very fiber-passionate women, Kylie Gusset of Tunnel and Jess Schreibstein of Witchin in the Kitchen. Jess is a Baltimore-based cook, artist, seasoned traveler, and lover of wool. You can find her at witchininthekitchen.com and on Instagram at The Kitchen Witch. Her enthusiasm and storytelling is really inspiring. And with that, here's Jess. I'd love to hear about your knitting, but starting out with some of your endeavors elsewhere. You know, I know that you love to cook, which is obvious by your Instagram. (laughs) And I'm sure you have other things that you love to do to express yourself creatively. Let's see, where to start? Well, I guess back in college, um, I graduated from college now five, six years ago. I was actually originally a painting minor. I've been painting since sixth grade for a long, long time. And painting was my first creative passion, really. I didn't learn to knit. I didn't really start exploring any fiber arts until um, until a little bit later. So I learned to knit from my great-grandma. She was uh, a daughter of a Polish immigrant, and she'll tell stories, or she, excuse me, she used to tell stories about how she wanted to join the neighborhood girls and learn to knit. And she her, her first pair of knitting needles were a pair of nails that she used to knit on. So she would tell me these crazy stories and I learned to knit sitting on her couch while she was watching like Days of Our Lives. And that was, you know, that was in uh, middle school, but I was painting this whole time. I was an oil painter and, you know, I, pi- I, I picked it up, I put it back down. And then uh, once I was in college, um, I was pursuing painting, you know, as that, that was my main focus. And I wasn't really knitting at all. That had taken a bit of a backseat and I hadn't really moved beyond the scarves accessories uh pursuits so I was just really focused on painting I started cooking a lot cooking a lot and then um my friend started uh you know referring to me as you know just the friend who can cook and the friend who can make food and that became more of a passion and focus after I graduated and I was living on my own and I started up my food blog, Witching in the Kitchen, as a way to keep in touch with these friends that I'd left behind. So I went to college in Los Angeles, but while in school, I also spent a couple semesters in Cape Town, South Africa, and Florence, Italy, both which have their very different, unique food cultures. So, you know, that that was also, you know, a, a real big interest. And, uh, you know, anyway, I brought that back with me and I was cooking a lot. And that was my main focus. And then I started getting back into knitting. And when I was in LA, I would go and do some weaving workshops with my aunt. My aunt lived north of the city. So she and I would go out into the desert. And uh, she knew all of these like kooky ladies at this like spinning fiber studio space. Um, I was, I'm not even sure where it was because I would drive up to her place and then she and I would drive together. And I wasn't ever, I was never really paying attention to where we were going. But I learned some basics about weaving, and then my aunt ended up investing in a loom. So I was able to practice weaving a little bit with her and learn some basics about spinning on a wheel. 
spinning yarn that is. So all of that stuff was just kind of in a, a big mesh, you know, the painting, the fiber arts, the cooking. And then I moved to DC to look for work. And my day job pretty much consists of being a, on a computer 24 seven. And so when I'm not at work, you know, I really want to be doing physical things. I don't watch a lot of TV. I read here and there, but I really want to be investing um, my body and my mind in physical activity. And so cooking uh, fills that hole. You know, painting has kind of unfortunately fallen by the wayside just because it really takes a lot of, a little bit of space um, for one thing. Uh, Daylight is very helpful and really getting in a zone. You know, it's not a, a craft, I think, in the same way that knitting is. It's not necessarily following patterns or rhythms. I mean, it can, but it's definitely a different approach from uh, cooking or knitting. So, you know, alas, it has taken a back seat, but at the same time, it's also allowed for my other pursuits um, and interests to rise to the forefront. So I've really gotten into knitting over the past few years. Um, and then that's branched into other interests as well, like fiber dyes and weaving and spinning within my uh, within my resources. So, and now I have this really long work commute. I, I live in Baltimore, but I work in DC every day and it's about an hour and a half door to door. And I'm sitting on a train from Baltimore to DC for a solid hour each way. So that's my knitting time. And I can't paint on the train. I can read on the train, but I can definitely knit. And so, yeah, I knit my first sweater earlier this year. I can't believe it actually took me this long, but better late than never. And now I'm hooked on knitting sweaters. But, but that's been that that's more or less kind of a timeline of, you know, these, these different crafts or, you know, art practices that I've pursued or, or picked up or dropped off or, you know, whatever along the way. Mm-hmm. I knit my first sweater this year, too. I don't know why it took me that long. I think I was more intimidated than anything, both of just the process. It's intimidating. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, and then also it's like, it's a big investment. If you're looking at a sweater, you're looking at, I mean, anywhere from, I think like 60 on the low end to like 150 plus dollars worth of yarn. And compared mm-hmm. to like a project that takes one to two skeins, that's a big investment. And so it's, it's a little scary taking that, taking that plunge. It is. It totally is. You know, being like, this is going to be like, I'm in here for the long haul, you know? Yeah. My biggest fear also was like, am I going to finish this? I need to finish this if I start it. So. Oh, yeah. I just am ending my commute time, which Mm -hmm. is kind of a bummer. So I'm going to have to figure out how to carve out that special time. Maybe these 17-hour road trips to Idaho. Who knows? (laughs) (laughs) As you were telling your story, you know, I was making mental notes about some of the things I've watched you go through on kind of your, I don't know, knitting journey. And one of the ones that really comes to mind is I'd love to hear the story behind your trip to Oaxaca and kind of how that came about and maybe just even a little bit about the trip. Sure. Well, so that was funny. So let's see, Oaxaca. I first got interested in Oaxaca and the first time I even heard about it, I was I was in college. I was working a summer job at a coffee shop in uh, Chincoteague Island, Virginia, which my parents live there now. I went there every summer growing up as a kid. And then when I was in college, I would go there and work, um, you know, just a summer gig at this coffee shop. And a coffee shop is limiting. You know, it's also um, it's 
let's see, it's like it's a home goods store. They sell like books and ceramics and clothes and a bunch of different stuff. It's a really quirky, eclectic store. And I ended up getting this one book on super duper discount because it had like a ripped cover and it's on Mexican textiles. And I remember just being totally enamored with this book and everything in this book and just the embroidery and the colors and the techniques and the dyes and like it's the first place I learned about uh cochineal which is this brilliant like the most brilliant red dye you can get from natural means it it comes from a, a small little bug in Mexico and uh that was my first introduction to Oaxaca one of my best friends from college she and I were actually roommates when we studied overseas together in Florence, Italy. We were just placed together randomly. She became one of my closest friends and she's Mexican. And I remember meeting her family for the first time in San Diego. And they're like, oh, have you ever been to Mexico? And I said, no, no, but I really want to go to Oaxaca. They're like, what is this white girl wanting to go to Oaxaca? Like all the, you know, American girls want to go to the beaches. And like, what is this? And I told them what little I knew. I'm like, I know that Oaxaca has amazing food. And I know that Oaxaca has a really rich cultural history and fiber culture and everything. And they were really impressed that I knew all this. And then that same friend called me up this time last year to tell me that she was getting married to her longtime sweetheart in Oaxaca. She's like, I want you to be in my wedding. Please come. I didn't think I'd be able to afford it or swing it, but I made it work. I figured, hey, like I wanted to go to Oaxaca now for years and I don't know when else I'm going to be back and I'm just going to take advantage of the trip. So I I took a a week off of work instead of just like a long weekend or something. I started researching residencies or workshops around natural dye techniques or weaving. Um, And Oaxaca has a lot of fiber history. I mean, Oaxaca is a a state in uh, uh, south central Mexico. It's very large. Uh, Oaxaca City is the capital, and it's a very colonial city, you know, very European city. Um, There's a lot of history there, but it it is a city. You know, it's, it's very vibrant. It's busy. There's a lot of local markets, a lot of people, a lot of churches. It's just beautiful. But Oaxaca as a state in Mexico is very large, very diverse. It's also very poor and it has a very large native population, you know, Mexican Indian people. Unlike in the United States where native populations were more or less wiped out, save for, you know, definitely, you know, there there are a lot of descendants of of Native Americans, but in Mexico they're they're very present and strong and the culture is very much alive. And the history there, the, the the textile history, the cultural history is embraced. Oaxacan people are, uh, when my friend, how did my friend phrase it to me? She's like, they're very stubborn people. You know, they're protesting a lot. You'll see people walking around in everyday contemporary clothes, but you also see a lot of people walking around in traditional dress, you know, just very, very proud of their cultural and their history. But, but anyway, so I, I did some research and I ended up, uh, I found a couple different things, but the one that ended up working out was this weaving workshop with this man who had been weaving his whole life. He learned to weave from his grandfather. Um, he just came from a long lineage of weavers and the entire workshop residency is organized by a woman named Norma Hawthorne, who has organized all these different tours and everything under the the name Oaxaca Cultural Navigator. And I knew she was legit because she had been featured in the New York Times like years ago. I, I found that 
you know, thank you, Google. <laughs> I found out like, you know, that this is a, you know, a legit workshop. Um, the, these people are real. You know, when I told my boyfriend, I'm like, oh, hey, well, I'm going to go do this for like four or five days. And he's like, who are these people? Are you sure it's going to be safe? You know, la, 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 la. And I'm a pretty stubborn person myself. So I'm like, whatever, I'm going to go do this. It's going to be, it's going to be great. And, and it really was. So I ended up going to this small village called Teotitlan del Val. It's about a 30 minute drive out of Oaxaca city. It's very rural, but it's internationally known for its weaving, for its rugs specifically. There's, I mean, I'm, I'm my, I'm by no means an expert. Like I've read several books on the subject, but like I'm by no means an expert, so I don't want to pretend to be, but Teotihuacan has just has a very long history of weaving and rugs. Um, that practice is very much alive and well. It's definitely the, I think the main, my understanding is it's the main economy of the town, of the village. It, you know, a lot of tourists will come buy rugs uh, from weavers in Teotihuacan. You know, everybody and their grandmother and their child are weavers in this, in this village. What's interesting too, is that a lot of these uh, weavings will be imported to the U.S. through Santa Fe. Like Santa Fe is uh, what I found is just kind of an interesting, that, that's the link to um, U.S. collectors in the U.S. is through gallery spaces in Santa Fe, which I also went to Santa Fe for another wedding just a couple weeks ago. And it's not too surprising. I mean, you see, you know, the cultures shared in uh, New Mexico and Santa Fe area, especially. And in Mexico, and you, def- you definitely see, you can see those connections with the culture and the lineage. And there's a a very vibrant fiber community in the Santa Fe area. So that connection's not too surprising. But, you know, what what I remember is that uh, Teotitlan really got put on the map, I think, a couple decades ago now. That was a, that that industry, which I think was more or less dying out. I mean, not even a, a real industry. You know, it's just crafts. Craftsmanship uh, was revived because of international and specifically American interest in investing in these rugs as art. So, so that's how I ended up there. And I, I was in Teotitlan for, let's see, I think four days, four or five days. I reached out, I mean, and Norma Hawthorne was a facilitator for the whole thing. Um, she was out of the country when I was there, so I didn't get to meet her. Uh, but she facilitated the whole thing. She set up, you know, my stay at a local bed and breakfast, you know, and I, I just reached out to her and said, hey, I'm going to be in town for this wedding. Like, is there any workshop scheduled? Can I just come. And she said, yeah, just come. We'll just, we'll have a class for you. We'll see if anyone else wants to sign up, but no one else signed up for the dates I was there. So I got a one-on-one wow. workshop with, uh, Federico. Yeah. It was with, uh, Federico Chavez Sosa. That's his name and his wife, uh, Lola. They're both master weavers. Um, their children are weavers, uh, dyers. They, they use natural dyes and all of their, all of their work. So I went to Federico's home every day and he set me up on my own loom. I knit a very, or excuse me, I knit, I I, uh, wove a very small rug by comparison to what, you know, most of these people are producing. I don't know, it was maybe uh, like two, three by two feet, two by three feet over the course of four days. I mean, they can bang something like that out in several hours, you know. And I had a basic working knowledge of weaving, so... I knew kind of sort of what I was doing, but these looms are also different. They're uh, looms where you're standing. You're not, you're not sitting to move the pedals. You're standing and moving the pedals with your feet, kind of like you're skiing. It's very physical. You know, you're bending over the loom the whole day. You know, it's, it's pretty draining work, but very meditative as well. All of his walls were just lined with 
wool and yarn that he had dyed himself in his studio right there. So you walk into his house and there's this entire courtyard in the middle of his house that's more or less open to the sky. It's it's an open courtyard. There was a, a plastic, you know, I'm not sure if it's, pla- I mean, plastic or some kind of, um, you know, roof above that would let in light, but would prevent, you know, rain from coming in, but lots of ventilation. So they would do their uh, fiber dyeing, their weaving, their spinning all in this open space. And they also had like a, a kitchen table there that they, they would eat their meals. You know, the family lived in the uh, second story of this house. The bottom story had a couple other storage rooms, a place where they keep their keep their other rugs that they've produced. So, but yeah, but every day I would I would go into their home and and work on my weaving, spend some time talking with Federico, and he'd share his, some of his books with me and inspiration. And you know, they would share their lunch with me. It was just, it was, it was really wonderful. You know, it's definitely after four or so days I could you know we begin begun to establish you know a friendship and a relationship there which you know I think that's what you want to get ideally whenever you travel anywhere is get to know who the people are who live there you know what their story is you know what their interests is their passions are their history their culture and I felt like the weaving just facilitated that introduction to the culture you know that I was interested in so but yeah that was my trip mm-hmm. to Oaxaca. That sounds amazing. <laughs> I had read about your trip uh, on Karen's blog, um, Fringe, and you know, my husband and I had been talking about going somewhere to do some sort of fiber-related workshop, but we wanted it to be authentic and not just like a touristy thing. And it was funny because as we were talking about this and we weren't sure where to look or, you know, what type of thing to do, I was following your trip on Instagram and I was like, gosh, that sounds so amazing. <laughs> I, I looked up the website and, and got all into it because they're having one in February. Then I realized that it's on my son's birthday. Oh, I wonder if I could get away with that. <laughs> so I don't know. It's still maybe in the cards, but we'll see. Yeah. And, and, you know, they have them all the time. I mean, I, I reached out to Norman and was like, hey, I'm in town this week. Anything possible? And she was so accommodating. So, you know, I, I think cool. if that's an interest, I mean, mm-hmm. even if anyone listening to this, if that if that's an interest of yours, um, I know that there are other workshops out there. I've spoken with other people who did similar things with different people. And it's a very small world down there. Like everybody knows everybody you know, you're studying with one person and the other person, you know, you talk with someone else on the street and like, they're their cousin, you know, it's so no matter, and and everybody, honestly, everybody's a master, everybody knows what they're doing. So if you want to learn, I mean, Norma and her, her uh, programs are a great resource, but I know there's some other ones out there too. So you talk a lot about the culture and the history and, and both with food and their craft and, did you take anything away from there that inspired? Oh, yes. <laughs> but the degree to which I'm able to replicate it is um, is a challenge. So actually, even before I even went, I did my research online to find an authentic Oaxacan cookbook. And I found one and I bought it and it's amazing, but it still sits on my bookshelf most of the time, <laughs> because the ingredients just aren't as readily available in Baltimore as they would be in the Southwest or California or somewhere else. I did find a Mexican grocery in Baltimore, and I'm very excited about it. But, you know, even though Mexican food 
is, re- I mean, a lot of Mexican food, I should say, is relatively simple. I mean, it's simple ingredients, simple preparation. A lot of it, a lot of the traditional Oaxacan food is not necessarily simple preparation and does like the small herbs and ingredients and spices make that makes the difference. So Oaxaca is known for a lot of different things. Oaxaca is considered like the food epicenter of Mexico. I mean, I didn't taste half of the things I wanted to taste while I was there, but the food there will blow your mind. (laughs) It's known as the land of the seven moles. So if you've heard of a mole, it means, I think it means mixture. You know, a lot of Americans might be familiar with the chocolate mole. Like it's it's this very rich sauce that is a blend of a bunch mm-hmm. of different spices and peppers. And the mole negro um, has chocolate in it. You, know, you put it on chicken, on rice. It's very rich. It's so flavorful. So that's the most commonly known mole. But then there's like six other main kinds of mole. There's green mole. There's yellow mole. There's red mole. And they're all different peppers, different spices, very different flavors. So I brought home several bags of mole with me that you can like mole paste that you thin out with uh, chicken stock. Um, but I got a little moleed out by the time I, I left. And I, I those bags and also it's like the sense that these bags are so precious. Like I don't want to even open them because then when I open them and I eat them, then they'll be gone. But I brought back mole with me. I brought back chocolate. Oaxacan chocolate is very famous. And the chocolate there is unlike any other chocolate you will ever taste. It's not sugary. It's not milky. It's almost a little brittle in the mouth. It's like, it's not chalky, but it like, it has this really kind of pebbly texture. The flavor is just really intense. You know, a lot of times, uh, like canea, which is like their cinnamon. It's not like the, the hard curled cinnamon sticks that we think of. It's this very papery, pale brown uh, cinnamon that has definitely a different flavor. I mean, it's still cinnamon, but like the flavor profile is really different. I mean, that flavor is added to their chocolate and made these different drinking chocolates. And so chocolate is a big thing. And then you have all these different salsas, um, fresh tortillas. I mean, if, if anything, I would love to be able to just teach myself how to make like fresh tortillas, fresh, uh, like make uh, steam, like some fresh tamales. Um, I've just, I haven't ventured into that realm yet. And um, Mm -hmm. Mexican food was definitely something I fell in love with when I lived in LA and I miss it. I miss it all the time. But, you know, it's just, it's one of those things. It's like just teaching yourself an entire new cuisine and how, you know, it's just, it's a long process. So Mm -hmm. there's definitely some some steps in there you know like okay like start with tortillas start with tamales but I haven't really gotten there yet (laughs) we all have a lot on our plates and I think you know that's one of those things I struggle with constantly is like okay how much time do I dedicate to this this and this and this which those things have to happen in my free time outside of your day job or whatever and usually it has something to do with it yeah (laughs) so totally well yeah I mean it's kind of the unfortunate truth of adulthood like I get home from work at 7 30 8 o'clock I go to bed around 11 so I can wake up at like 5 36 the next day it's like okay how do I want to spend that you know three hour chunk of quote free time every day and usually involves eating some dinner you know doing chores what you got to do and then it ends up being I don't know an hour of leisure time 
you know, and I think it's so easy to fall into the trap of like, okay, we're going to, you know, I'm just going to zone in front of the TV and chill out because I deserve this, which is probably Mm -hmm. true. But, you know, you also probably deserve to exercise your mind with a good book or a good craft or time with the people who matter to you or exercise. Oh, God forbid, like exercise. That's like fallen off my agenda completely. I know. Um, You know, just, (laughs) uh, yeah, I mean, Ugh, working women, like trying to fit it all in. It's uh, it's tough, but you do what you got to do. So you took away from Oaxaca this this idea about food and I guess these hopes and aspirations that someday you can become familiar with them more in your own kitchen. But one of the things that many people don't realize nowadays is the rich history behind a lot of the different fiber crafts. And, you know, you Mm -hmm. probably came away with a much richer history around weaving. But what were some of the things that you took away, like personally, that you feel like affect fiber choices or, you know, even like pattern choices or did it affect you in any way like that? Yeah. Oh, that's a really interesting question. Well, even to preface that before I went and I was, my boyfriend didn't go with me to Oaxaca you know, it was expensive and it was, it was really a personal trip. But I remember just telling him like, I'm going to go do this weaving thing. He was like, well, you can't keep that up when you get back. So why, you know, why would you want to do that? Like you can't, we can't have a loom in our tiny apartment. You know, wouldn't that be a bummer? You like, you go and learn all these skills, but then you can't continue to pursue them, at least not immediately. For me that, I mean, I would love to be able to come home and weave a little bit every night. That would make me very happy. In addition to all the other fibrous pursuits I want to pursue, like dyeing, you know, I I don't have a yard. Um, You know, I don't have much ventilation in the way of ventilation. So uh, dyeing is tricky. You know, all these things I'd love to pursue, they they may or may not actually be achievable where I am right now in my life with what's available to me. But, you know, I I don't, I wish it were all available, but that's not really the point. To me, it's just the act of learning is the the real interest or the reward there. Um, everything else is a bit secondary. Just being in Oaxaca and being in that environment where outside you hear, you know, the trash man go by. Like the trash man had like this really weird music that would play kind of like an ice cream truck. <laughs> and then you'd also hear like these these crows all the time and these goats and dogs barking and just being in a very different environment where you're not plugged in at all. You're, your body and your mind are functioning, you know, in a different space that a lot of other people across the world live in every day. Like a lot of people do not live in this world where they're completely plugged in on their phones all the time and they're living a different reality. And I think to step out of that and, and see that reality and especially to be in, in a village, in a community where weaving and textiles are primarily what this village lives for, what these people live for. Like being surrounded by that is is very, very powerful, especially to someone who just loves this stuff, just loves geeking out about it. I have this uh, big kind of carpet bag I would carry around with me, and I picked it up at this old antique store in Virginia a couple years ago, and I think it's of Turkish origin, and all of these people would stop me on the street in Teotitlan, like asking me about my bag and where I got it, and wanting to look at the weaving and approving of the weaving, you know, because it's a really tight weave and just fascinated by it. And you can tell that like these people know their craft. They spot it and all the details just the same way that a knitter 
you know, is on public transportation and is looking at people's hats and being like, oh, I really like that person's hat. I wonder how they made that or like what yarn did they use? It's the same kind of thing, except like practically everybody just has this eye. So to be in that environment, I think just really kind of, I, I can't speak to specifically what I think that experience provided, but it definitely, it turns a different switch in your head about, I think, how you're approaching this or like your understanding of what this craft is and where it comes from and where it could be going. I mean, for me personally as well, just being surrounded by so much color, like the color is so in your face in Oaxaca. It's so refreshing. The last time I went on, I I traveled out of the country at all was in Iceland. Um, I did a solo trip to Iceland in 2012 for kind of a very similar reason. Um, It was just a passion. It was something I felt like I had to do. I went and I didn't really turn it into a fiber pilgrimage in the same way that I, my trip to Oaxaca was. But, you know, just as a knitter, I was I was definitely knitting a lot during that trip um, and at that time. And so I was observing a lot. There are sheep all over the all over the mountains in Iceland. I mean, there are no <laughs> trees in Iceland because the sheep have eaten them all. <laughs> over the past several centuries, the sheep have eaten all the trees off of this island. But the colors there, you know, there's very vibrant colors in the summer in Iceland, but the colors that people are wearing are the colors of the land. You know, they're they're grays, they're whites, they're just neutrals. You know, I see these colors reflected a lot in like mm-hmm. maybe uh, the aesthetic of like maybe the Pacific Northwest. You know, I know we were talking about that a little bit before or um, you know, I grew up actually outside of Boston and people wear black and navy and pine green all the time, you know, just these very dark, you know, wintry colors. And for the context of where these crafts are coming from, I mean, you're you're in Iceland, you're in the Pacific Northwest, you're in New England. It's these these cold places and these cold colors. And then to be in Oaxaca where um, people aren't knitting sweaters, there's, I mean, I, well, actually they are, you know, some people, you know, people do wear sweaters, it does get cold, but that's not the primary craft. You know, people are weaving rugs, they're um, weaving blouses, they're, they're just, uh, they're applying their, their skill in, uh, to a different uh, final product. The, the place, I think, informs that final product so much. There's, you know, Oaxaca is just so, uh, it's a, it's a very, it's a very diverse state, but Oaxaca City is pretty arid. You know, there's a lot of dry land, but there's also a lot of kind of lush uh, uh, trees. Apparently, you know, hundreds of years ago, it used to be a jungle. This is what I was told by someone there. And it's it, ha- it, it shares, it hugs some of the coast as well. But you have these cacti and these bright flowers and just these tropical colors, flavors, spices, and you see that in in the fiber, the colors of the buildings, and just people aren't scared of color. That in its way is just as refreshing as being in a place with devoid of palette. You know, you have these kind of two extremes, one where it's just so much color everywhere and it just wakes you up, and this other, you know, like Iceland where it's more devoid of color and it's calming and it's introspective, uh, introverted, you know, just these two contrasts. And I think if anything, that was my main takeaway where I felt like my palette or the patterns or the things I was gravitating towards were really informed by my trip to Iceland. And then I go to Oaxaca and it kind of counterbalances that. I came home with 
some really brightly colored yarn that I, I, I bought from Federico that he dyed himself, like this bright fuchsia, like the color of like bougainvillea flowers, you know, and I, that was dyed with a uh, cochineal and um, this like rich mustard yellow that was dyed with marigold flowers. Um, I don't wear <laughs> pink all that often, you know, if, um, you know, right now I'm wearing like jeans and today I wore like a gray purple shirt and a dark gray sweater, you know, I still kind of gravitate towards neutrals, but, you know, I, I, I hope and think that, you know, Oaxaca helped push my, my palette awareness, not even awareness, just my, my willingness, I should say, to be a little braver with palette, even in my wardrobe and what I'm, I'm knitting for myself or for others. And then also in, and then pattern. And there's so much about pattern that I want to learn about from that region that I don't know about, but you know, you, you see it a lot reflected in, in the Southwest of the U S as well. These very geometric patterns, you know, and I'm definitely gravitating towards that kind of stuff. It may or may not appear in a knitted garment, you know, having this big Zapotec star in the back of like a knitted sweater would be pretty cool, but it's hard to find patterns with that. And I'm not really at the skill level yet where I'm designing my own patterns, but you know, definitely something to take into consideration. So yeah, you know, I think it influenced me in a lot of ways. Um, you know, some I can identify, maybe some are, you know, a little more, can't, can't necessarily verbalize. Listening to you talk about color, that's something that you're very right. Pacific Northwest definitely has a tendency towards more neutrals, the introspective palette. You know, being from Seattle, I always gravitated towards grays and blacks and kind of these muted tones. And also I think as a designer and working with only designers, I feel like sometimes we'd look at each other and we'd all be wearing black. Yeah. So this year I knit like a crazy colorful pairs of socks, which is totally outside my comfort zone. But at the same time, I kind of like it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and socks, like who is going to see your socks? Hopefully they're in some really cute boots and only you know that you're wearing them, but they like give you a bit of like secret power or something, right? Like, like I am wearing funky, like yellow, purple socks and you can't mm-hmm. stop me. So yeah, I think color is funny because I think a lot of knitters embrace it. And sometimes when I see it, I'm like, Oh, I can never wear that. Or, you know, I could, I, I can't even imagine buying mm-hmm. that, but I don't know. It's part of that whole like creative expression that I don't know. It's, I like it. I like the boldness of it. Mm-hmm. So we talked a lot about your your trip to Oaxaca, which the passion and and just the way that you talk about it, uh, at least for me, it's inspiring not only to definitely want to go there, but just to be continue on this journey of like learning more about this craft that we do and wool in general. Um, and all the different techniques around it. Tell me a little bit about your knitting community there. Uh, Well, I moved to Baltimore in January, so I'm still in the process of making friends and making connections and tapping into that community for sure. Um, But that community is definitely here. The more I learn about it, the more I find more stuff. What I really wish were here, like just in my back door in the middle of the city, we're like, oh, I would love, Mm -hmm. you know, just a weaving class I could go to after work or on weekends or a spinning class. And those resources are here, but they're outside the city, like a bit of a drive, which I think is the case with a lot of stuff. I think, you know, a lot of, you know, it takes kind of space and resources to, um, 
pursue that kind of stuff. So it tends not to be in the center of cities. And I don't have a car, so it makes those things kind of hard to get to. There are fiber artists in the city who are doing dyeing and stuff. There's unfortunately some of them are also closing their doors. Um, and I found out about this great little line called cephalopod that was around for several years, but the first time I walked in their doors was for their closeout sale, which was very sad. <laughs> and uh, they had this entire dye studio in the back. I got some gorgeous yarn from them, but but yeah, they were closing up shop after several years and going on to big and better things. So, but I was able to learn a little bit about that. A couple of my friends who I've known from DC who moved to Baltimore before me or who I've connected with since I've been here have also helped me kind of tap into that a little bit. One new friend of mine, um, her name's Rosemary Liss. She is an incredible fiber artist and painter. Um, she and I have connected for our passion around food, painting, fiber, like basically kind of like our top three passion projects. She works at Hex Ferments, which is this wonderful uh, new business in Baltimore that makes fermented foods that are incredible, like sauerkrauts that don't taste like your grandfather's sauerkraut and kombucha that's like bright purple and like just crazy delicious stuff. And so Rosemary's been um, taking photographs of some of these foods in fermentation, like with her iPhone, you know, just like really low, low res or like you know, not high tech images, but then um, having them printed and then sewing them and quilting them together um, into on, on, onto stretched canvas as these abstract pieces. Just really interesting. And she's created a series of those um, and then complemented that like with her paintings. And so there's there's some really cool stuff going on that take fiber into a different space. It's not just, you know, craft and you know, the making of objects, it's also moving it into uh, the fine art space like that. Um, so that's going on. But yeah, I mean, and, and Baltimore is such a great place for that just because it has mica here, which is the, for those who don't know, it's um, the um, Maryland Institute College of Art. It's just this fabulous internationally renowned art school. And it's right in our backyards. And a lot of people, um, a lot of artists and creators come to the city to go to MICA and a lot of them stick around after they graduate. And so the city just has a very vibrant community of artists of all types and colors. So I think that's also a real strength that can inform a fiber practice, not necessarily literally or specifically, mm -hmm. but through proxy. I think being in some sort of creative, inspirational and aspirational community is really important to especially newcomers to that city. Since moving to San Francisco, I it's kind of crazy how many different things you know come to know since moving there. It just it's really, I guess, what inspired and motivated me to get this fiber mill going. So it's interesting this you know how cities can take part in your journey as a maker. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean oh, I almost forgot to mention like what is it called the um the Maryland fiber uh, I'm gonna totally butcher the name um and I've only been once but there's a Maryland fiber festival Maryland sheep oh Maryland sheep and wool festival duh um like every beginning of every May which by the time it's May it's like 80 degrees here but whatever there's like a sheep and wool festival where everyone is still walking around in their heavy wool sweaters because sheep and wool festival and yeah and that's that's not too far away from here as well like I haven't been there now like I think I went there three, four years ago. It's It's been a while, but 
yeah, I think it's just the nature too of like, you know, I came from DC where everything is like hyper organized and everybody is in like reading groups or like, this is like this organized, you know, activity we do together. And Baltimore has a little more of a laid back approach to everything. But I mean, organized art and craft, I think is maybe one of those where you have these established connections and relationships with people, but they may not necessarily be organized into, um, you know, specific craft mm-hmm. nights or clubs. That's great. You are teaching a class coming up here in November. Is that right? A knitting class? Yeah, yeah. Um, up in uh, Brooklyn. So is this going to be your first time teaching? Yes and no. No, because I actually started the uh, NPR Knitting Club. Oh, my um, gosh. <laughs> at National Public Radio when I... I I know, I know. It's like, it's so NPR. It's so NPR. (laughs) Um, uh, I was, I worked at NPR for four years, actually around this time last year. I mean, I was coming up on my fourth year and a friend of mine was admiring my scarf and asked me if I would knit her one. And, uh, you know, she's like, I'll I'll pay you. I'm like, okay, well, that's cool. But um, let me just come up with, you know, a price quote for you. And I quoted her like 75 bucks. And that was like a generous discount from the amount of time it would take me to make it and how much the yarn would cost. And she was like, eee, it's a lot. And I'm like, how about I just teach it in it? And she's like, oh, okay, that sounds great. And then I mentioned it to a couple other people and they were all like, I want to learn, I want to learn. So we ended up hanging out over lunch, you know, once or twice a week. I taught, I don't know, I think like five plus people how to knit and started everybody on hats. I think hats are definitely the way to I mean, not definitely. I guess everybody has their thing. But um, I think hats are a really good way to start people out on knitting because uh, it's a smaller project than the traditional scarf. I think people can get really discouraged with scarves because mm-hmm. they just go on forever and never end. Whereas a hat, it's there's more uh, techniques involved. Mm-hmm. But um, you're basically, if you're just doing a simple uh, uh, roll, like a rimmed uh, roll hat, all you're doing is knitting, 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 knitting until you're ready to decrease. And then you're just like, knitting two together, knitting, 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 and then you're binding off. Like, I just think it's, it's a really simple way to get people introduced to the craft without going like all in on this, like three skein scarf project. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so I've, I've, I've taught people in that kind of informal setting before. And then this is my first, you know, formal people are actually like paying a class fee to attend a class with me, which is funny and awesome all at once. Um, and, uh, (laughs) <laughs> but yeah, but um, I really I'm working with Brooklyn Brainery to to host the class and they're really great. I'm totally what they're all about, which is basically making knowledge um, accessible to anybody who wants to learn. So, um, you know, I see a lot of not to, um, you know, push back necessarily on artists who are charging a lot of money because that's the way that they're making their living to teach their craft. But I see classes for, you know, skill techniques going like one two hundred dollars for like a few hour class and that really limits who is able to access that knowledge knitting should be accessible to everybody it's uh you know it historically has been accessible to everybody and it's a low i mean relatively low cost you know hobby there's so many great benefits like I mean, I'm not going to go into benefits of knitting. Everybody listening to this podcast <laughs> knows the benefits of knitting. You know, that, that yeah, and like I'm all about sharing the knowledge in an accessible way to people. I was just talking to someone a couple of days ago about the fact that 
one of the cool things about knitting is it has such a low barrier to entry, which, you know, doesn't mean everyone should do it or will stick to it, I guess, but it does really open up doors for those creatives that may have otherwise been intimidated by it. I learned online. I mean, my an old aunt taught me how to originally, but really I, you know, developed my skills just watching YouTube videos online, like, I don't know, like four or five years ago. And um, mm-hmm. so I think it, I think that's cool. I really like what you just said about that. Um, mm-hmm. One last thing I wanted to ask you was um, what kind of fibers that you tend to gravitate towards and what projects you're working on right now? Oh, um, wool, 100%. You know, I've worked with like alpaca. I've never worked with cashmere. Cashmere is a little bit out of my budget, or at least like what I want to actually spend on my knitting projects. Cotton, I think hemp, but yeah, like a good gushy wool is just like the best thing ever. And I definitely, it it took a while for me to learn. Um, You know, I'm a pretty thin stick of a person. And when I moved back East from LA, I was getting sick every single year. Like every month I would come down with another cold and I couldn't understand why, why am I getting sick all the time? And then my family and my boyfriend finally hammered home that, um, you are not dressing properly for the elements. Last year I started wearing wool sweaters, not the acrylic sweaters you get at the store. And (laughs) Eureka, I am so much warmer and I get sick so much less. You know, wool is just this magic fiber, it is. you know, but it's it's hard to find, uh, you know, maybe sweaters or garments in the style you want, in the fiber you want. Like you can get inexpensive acrylic sweaters for like, I don't know, 50 something plus bucks at Gap or whatever. And then you can get expensive, but very thin, like cashmere or merino wool sweaters from like J. Crew or something for like $200 that aren't going to necessarily keep you warm. So it's like, no, I want like a lush, warm wool sweater, like old fashioned style. Where can I find it? And I realized, oh, I maybe just have to make it. So that's mm-hmm. what that's what kind of just kicked me in the butt of like starting my first sweater. And then also actually Karen's blog just really laid out how simple it is to start a sweater and the different kinds of sweaters that you can knit. And that was a real inspiration for me in just getting started. So right now I am finishing up the Ivar cardigan from Brooklyn Tweed. I've been knitting this poor baby since when I went to Oaxaca. I started this thing in May (laughs) and uh, I'm still knitting it, but um, I started my second sleeve today and I'm going to wrap up the second sleeve, then block it and do the finishing. And then I am done. It is perfect timing because it's getting really cold here. Yay. And then my friend Claire and I have uh, both decided to take on the new pattern on Dawa from Brooklyn Tweed. We're kind of doing it as a mm-hmm. joint like knit along knit along thing. But since I'm still finishing up this other pattern, she's just like gone ahead, gone ahead and gotten started and is like speeding through it. So I'm probably going to be playing some major catch up. But that is next on the list. It's like this beautiful cabled sweater but that's it's a real kind of like rethink modernization of a traditional cable sweater with this real boxy shape in the torso and also just like kind of these tight sleeves and this open boat neck collar so adding kind of just a basic wool cardigan to my wardrobe and then shaking it up a little bit with you know a a fun little cable cable knit so that's next on my list I love that sweater the Andawa I'm actually talking to Michelle the designer in a couple weeks for the podcast so uh she's so great okay so every sweater Every sweater I've knit, Ivar is her sweater. 
the first sweater I knit is her sweater. <laughs> like I, I clearly have a thing for Michelle's designs or Michelle clearly has a thing for making designs that I love. Either way, her stuff's amazing. <laughs> that's, that's really great. I, you know, sweaters, I feel like all I want to do is knit sweaters now. I, I finally finished, I finally knit and finished my first scarf that I've ever knit. And I think it was because they just, the fact that they take forever, you know, and at least with a sweater, even though it takes a while, like you're kind of doing something different all the time. So you break it up a little bit, which is nice. Mm -hmm. Gosh, we've already been talking for an hour. I'm sure we could talk for much longer. (laughs) (laughs) I love hearing more about your trip and, and just kind of your passion behind kind of everything that you do really. And, uh, yeah, I'm really excited to see you start on your latest sweater. Thank you for having me. It's been awesome talking to you and and meeting you. And it's been so great to connect with other passion people, even if you don't have a, a specific fiber community in the city or town or whatever you live, just knowing that there is a wider community for context and inspiration is so great. And you're a part of that. So thank you. For this week's Man on the Street, I asked a handful of fiber enthusiasts to answer the following question. If you could travel to any country and immerse yourself in their fiber culture and customs, which country would you choose? Here's what they had to say. Hi, this is Andy from Chandler. You can find me at mysistersknitter at typepad.com. If I could travel to any country and immerse myself in the cultures and customs, it would be Peru. And this is because of Peru's history with textiles that goes back 9,000 plus years. The traditions of the true alpacas, whether it be a scarf, hat, or whatever clothing is still happening today. Their use of local flowers and plants for their dyeing process that results in vibrant and vivid colors. Just to experience the culture of the Peruvians and to see the alpacas learn from the dyers and the knitters would be a trip of a lifetime. Hi, this is Nikki from Asheville. You can find me on Instagram at wildvioletknits. If I could travel anywhere right now, I would go to Scotland because I've always been drawn to its green beauty, Gaelic customs, and recently Shetland wool. In October, I participated in the Shetland Wool Week Knit Along and at my first Fair All hat, I was hooked with the beauty of the color pattern we made with our hats and the durability, the texture, and the warmth of the Shetland wool yarn. Hi, this is Sonia from Tenina, Washington. You can find me on Instagram at a tree by the river. If I could travel to any country, I would go to first Norway. That is the land of my heritage. But as far as knitting goes, I haven't uh, dove into that real deep yet. So I would probably have to go to the Shetland Islands thanks in part to Gudrun Johnston for uh, introducing me to that area more. Just their heritage there with the sheep is so deep and rich. I would just love to gain some of their knowledge and get my hands on some traditional fair isle and lace. After looking at Gudrun's new book, The Shetland Trader Book 2, and her pattern for the Northdale sweater, I'm just amazed at how that is only three colors used in that sweater, and it's just gorgeous. So there you have it. I think I would go to the Shetland Islands.
I'm not sure I've met a more spunky, sheep-loving Aussie than our next guest, Kylie Gusset. She has a vast knowledge of the industry, in particular the breed that brings us some of the softest wool I've ever laid hands on, Cormo. In 2011, Kylie crowdfunded one ton of Cormo, rallying knitters and makers alike. You can find her at tonofwool.com and on Instagram at tonofwool. And with that, here's Kylie. How's it going? Um, it's going well. It's actually a beautiful Melbourne uh, sunny spring afternoon. We've we've actually had a, a warm day today, which is really unusual for us, and it's been lovely. I literally have this long, long list. Okay, I need to ask her about this. I need to yeah. ask her about this. There's a lot, isn't there? We might have to split it up into more than yeah, one of these. Quite, <laughs> quite possibly. What what I'm happy to do is um, let's go with the stuff that might be. Um, kind of difficult to get elsewhere so so one of them could be about Cormo and how I got to start to start working with them um, which was quite interesting in itself the way that that actually happened was that um, I found out about Cormo uh, thanks to going to Stop Summit which happened in Portland which was the brainchild of uh, the yarn harlots, Stephanie Pomic C, and also Tina from Blue Moon Fiber Arts got together and put Sock Summit on for uh, two years in 2009 and 2011. And um, back then in 2009, I was just starting a yarn buying business uh, literally in that I hadn't even purchased my dyes or wool or anything. And all of a sudden I had found out about this uh, about this great big festival over in Portland and I was thinking, well, what I should do is apply and then they'll knock me back, but at least I'll know who I am. So then in future years when I go to apply, there won't be any problems. And I was like, sweet, okay, I'll do that. There was just one problem they accepted me. (laughs) So uh, I found myself over in Portland and one of the things that I did while I was over there was that I went to a uh, workshop that Clara Parks was giving about, you know, finding the perfect sock yarn. And uh, I basically stayed in contact with Clara since then, and she's put out her books as well, such as The Knitter's Book of Yarn, uh, The Knitter's Book of Socks, and, of course, The Knitter's Book of Wool. And along with The Knitter's Book of Wool, uh, she had a knit-along happening on Ravelry where we were actually going through the chapters of the book and looking at the different kind of wools and what they'd be great uh, to use for. So my little thing while this was happening was that I was going to make it sort of as as local as possible so that, for example, if we were looking at blue faced Leicester, I would see if there was some way that I could source it locally. So I think I just ended up finding it in someone's stash or something. But when the time came to to look at Cormo, I I hadn't even really sort of heard of the breed and <laughs> here am I in Australia and here's this Australian breed that I hadn't heard of. So I was like, okay, time to do some research. So I ended up actually calling Peter Downey and saying to him, look, you know, I'm doing this thing and I'd really appreciate it if I could get my hands on some of your wool. Could you send me some? And he did. And we basically stayed in contact since then of they have this thing in Bothwell in Tasmania where they're based called the Spin In. And I thought it would be a smart idea for me to go down there and uh, sell my yarn. And I mentioned this to Peter and he said, look, why don't you come and stay with me because I'm really close to there. And I thought it would just be a great sort of opportunity just to meet the family and see what they were doing. And 
um, to, to see Bothwell as well. I hadn't actually been to Tasmania. So it was just this really great adventure to, to go on, and it certainly was. I had no idea what I was in for. Um, I can remember saying to Peter before I went, you know, do, do we need to bring a sleeping bag? Because I figured we'd just be staying out in Shira's quarters because as a farm girl myself, this is the kind of thing that I was used to when you go and stay at a, at a farmer's place, particularly when, you know, you're in a sort of rural location when it's population, you know, 100 or 300 or so, um, and they've probably got quite a few other people staying with them. There's no problem staying out in the shoes huts or whatever they have. And they were just like, oh, no, you'll be fine. <laughs> so we went to meet them, and it was just the most glorious experience ever. Um, they have, yeah, gorgeous house, uh, lovely, um, just gorgeous land and yeah their sheep while being quite plain faced it's just amazing to see the actual wool that comes off them it's yeah very special and one of a kind you're just making me so excited talking about it <laughs> <laughs> yeah well I guess that was the starting thing the other thing was um, yeah this this was a time when um, Ian Downey passed away uh, recently about uh, three months ago I think now um, and what, while I was there, this was a thing, I was actually quite sort of excited at this concept of this is a breed that we've actually come up with in Australia that is quite well known in the US. How, how did this happen? How did this come to being? So um, as luck would have it, I actually had Anne Downey Senior um, because both Peter and Ian just happened to marry women called Anne just to make things very confusing. <laughs> Um, I happened to meet Anne Senior. Uh, she she came to sort of see what I was up to and so forth at, at the spinning because she's very very much involved in sort of wool and handicrafts and all that sort of thing. Um, and yeah, chatting to her and just said, you know, would you mind if I actually came and paid you a visit this afternoon so I could meet Ian? And she was like, oh, okay, if you'd like, sure. <laughs> so I ended up turning up to them and just sort of meeting them there at the house. And it was just a sort of wonderful experience. And um, the thing that I won't forget is the very first thing that uh, Ian said to me, you know, was, so... You're into the wool, huh? Tell me about this thing. What is crimp? So I started sort of waxing lyrical about about crimp and its importance in wool and how it's different in different breeds and all this sort of thing. And he was just like, you know, this this crimp business, crimp means nothing. <laughs> it's, it's it's all about, you know, the, these other factors that you need to look at. And that's basically where I got schooled was, was thanks to him. Um, what I didn't realize was that Ian is very much his major, major pioneer in the Australian wool industry with what he did. Um, the story was he basically, Cormo uh, was born out of adversity. Of He inherited a flock of sheep and a major amount of debt. They were Saxony Merino, which is like a super, super fine wool, um, incredibly gorgeous. Uh, the issue with the sheep themselves is that they actually require a lot of care, things like um, staying up at all ungodly hours of the night, helping them birth and so forth, so you can ensure that you actually have live lambs. Things like that were going on. Um, so he didn't really 
he saw that there were all these issues that he was having and he was sort of sitting there just going, this this is not going to be viable and this can't work and it can't continue. How, how can we turn things around? So <laughs> he was incredibly brave. What he actually did was he sought some advice from CSIRO. Um, CSIRO is actually a government organization or a government-funded organization um, which is about scientific research. And what was really interesting was back in 1959, uh, he actually sought the advice of a female scientist, uh, which I guess even in these days of having a female scientist to actually advise you on wool would probably be a bit sort of um, unusual. But I mean, back in 1959, it would be unheard of. And a bunch of farmers doing this as well. I mean, <laughs> but that was what he did. Uh, so what they came up with was this whole sort of concept of objective measurement. Uh, so from here on in, what what they decided to do was that they were going to use microns. So these are millions of, uh, let me get this right, millions of a meter. It's a super, 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 super fine measurement which is right. used. Um, and what they what they decided was that with this measurement that if any of the wool that came off the sheet fell outside of a certain parameter, which I think at the moment it's around 21 microns. So if it falls out of around 19 to 21 microns, if it falls outside of that, um, they're not going to have those sheep. Mm -hmm. So anything that fell outside of that would be sold or uh, killed, one or the other. Um, so that was one of the things that they looked at, was that objective measurement. So that was a way that things were going to work. Um, and there's been sort of all sorts of benefits from here on in. If you don't really need to class wool or look at it that much because all sheep are the same. If they're all being bred at this one measurement, well, then you don't really need to worry about the when you actually go to sale, they're all relatively the same. So there's, there's not these issues of classing and so forth that you need to look at, which was of great advantage to them back then. The other thing that they looked at was the actual breed itself. So the issue with the Saxony Merino of, of breeding and so forth, that they weren't getting that many lambs, and the lambs that they were getting, there was this whole issue with birthing and so forth. So they looked at what sheep have sort of got the characteristics that we need that, that's going to help these Saxony Merino. We can't do away with them, so maybe we can sort of fix things somehow with another breed. So that's where they got the Corridale from. So that's where they came up with the idea of crossing the two in order to get sort of the better birthing rates and so forth. And then there's also with wool, it would actually be slightly stronger, but there would also be a, a slight change. There's, there's also Corridale wool has also got this amazing sort of qualities in itself as well. It's got a great sort of luster, and even though Ian wasn't that big on crimp himself, me personally, I, yeah, Corridale has got this amazing, um, if you get it from the right sort of source, it's almost like um, crinkle cut frozen chips that you get at the supermarket <laughs> that have got that really defined sort of crispy edge to it. It's, it's almost like that. It's just gorgeous. Mm -hmm. So that was the sort of thing that they were crossing with. Um, so the end result was that uh, what they were getting out of that was this sort of very defined flock 
of animals that had this sort of selective micron is it it was fine um, because across it was a corridor it was also a bog pepper sheet now so it could be used for both meat and wool um, and also because across it was a corridor there was also this um, with the mothering what actually happened there was that um, with the birthing they didn't have the problems but there was also um, a higher incidence of twins and that was something that they sort of bred into the breed, so to speak. Um, that that twinning ability, I mean, obviously, if you're looking at profits and if you need to turn a dead around, um, two lambs is going to become more profitable than one. So so that was what they did. He basically, yeah, created history. That's incredible. I guess. Yeah. You know, this is obviously a lot of information. You spent a lot of time with the family. How did they share this information with you? Was it just spending time with them on their farm, like, over multiple occasions? Yeah, well, I mean, with with Ian, it was just sitting down with him. Um, I've, um, I get, well, you could say it was my one regret, but it's not my one regret. It's the one thing that I'm really glad of, that I actually put my neck out and just said, hi, I'm visiting you this afternoon, sort of thing. I mean, yeah, how was I to know? <laughs> Um, so I'm just grateful that I had that opportunity to just sit down with him and to get that sort of history straight from him. But I mean, there also is, there are quite a few sort of really great resources that are around as well. Like, for example, Clara Parks with the Netters Book of Law was the thing that got me started. Um, and there's quite a few other sort of um, books that are out and more that are coming out as well. So. So that's been really helpful. And I think it's really great to sort of see an interest in diversity because that's one of the things that truly scares me about the Australian wool industry um, is that at the moment um, where we need to go is where we're going with bread. Where bread used to be is that... um, you know, back in the 60s or whatever, if if you wanted bread and you purchased it, it would be white, it would be sliced, it would be in plastic and it would be from the supermarket. Uh, to this day, that is still what we are doing with wool. Um, for example, if you go to uh, wool.com.au and you're a consumer, you're taken to merino.com because there's only one kind of wool in Australia and that's merino. And there's only one kind of wool and that's white. And there's only one thing that mm-hmm. it's used for, it seems to be high fashion. <laughs> and uh, it just seems ridiculous that this is sort of seen as, you know, this is the Australian wool industry. We only have white merino and that's it. Uh, it it really does scare me that that is sort of the way that things are at the moment. And um, it gives me a lot of hope just seeing what is happening overseas, particularly in the US, and interest from people such as you who can see that local local sort of production is the way to go in that there's a lot more interest now in in doing things locally and finding out about the provenance of of what you're working with or what you're wearing or what you want to make and finding out the story behind it, which I think is really important. And particularly with a wall, um, given the stories that aren't being told mm-hmm. in this area, I think it is super important. Um, what, what a lot of people don't know is that uh, 70% of the world's merino comes from Australia. Uh, approximately 90% of that is processed in China. And I am, 
I need to go back and have a look at the figures, but one of the reasons why I guess that sort of swept under the carpet is that two of the main sort of exports out of Australia are wool and coal. So where do these exports go to? They go to China. So the wool goes to China to be processed, and what's the energy source that that wool is processed with? Coal. How handy. <laughs> so, yeah, it's it's this weird sort of combination of things that nobody really knows about. It's 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 an incredible story and it's the kind of thing where, you know, you're really tempted to call up someone like Eric Slosser, who wrote Fast Food Nation to sort of uh to let us know about, you know, fast food and McDonalds and sort of go, you know, hey, when are you gonna look at the wool industry and actually tell this story? Because it's insane. Mm-hmm. So Maybe that's a story we need to tell. <laughs> I think so. Yeah, it it definitely is. Um, one of the things that really scares me at the moment is that the whole concept of labeling of wool in Australia is quite scary. As you have things like um, in the US, if you have 100% American wool, for example, on a finished product, um, you would assume that it hadn't really left the country. You know, right. you would think that that was an American-made thing, yeah? Yeah. For example, if you bought a sweater and it said 100% American wool, would you think that it was American? I know that it's not. That's only yeah. because I've digged beneath the surface, and that's one of the things that has me very concerned is, you know, knitting's taken on this huge, you know, new craze and, and for good reason, and it's amazing, but people aren't looking any further than just the color or the feel of it. Certain brands are producing at such a high production, and just like food or anything else, they're not looking at, like, where it's processed, you know, what it's made of, chemicals are used in the process, what harm it's doing to the environment. I'm a huge proponent of domestic fiber or sustainably processed fiber. So I hear you. I think it's a it's a massive issue that nobody really wants to talk about because the benefit is having people just not know. Yeah. Um, and that's the thing that really does scare me. If people think that they're doing the right thing because they're buying this, you know, uh, Wool knitting yarn, which is a hundred percent Australian wool made in Australia, yet there is no mention anywhere that it's been to China for the bulk of its processing. Mm-hmm. It's been scoured, made into top, and spun in China. Then it just comes back to Australia for literally twisting and dyeing and packing. So if this were a cage, it would basically be made in China and then shipped back to be iced before it was served up to you. So if it was happening to food, there would probably be a bit of a, a bit of an uproar. And it certainly has happened in Australia. A supermarket has been banned from advertising bread, which was actually made in Ireland and then shipped over here um, and in a frozen state, I think, and then they defrosted it and um, baked it in their ovens and said that it was, you know, baked fresh mm-hmm. daily. So, yeah, so it does happen, but uh, we're yet to see it happen with wool, and I think it will be interesting the day, the day that that does happen. Yeah, it's there's a little side project that I've been working on with a friend. It's called Little Woolens, and one of the things that we want to do for that is all the fiber that we use for the patterns, we want to make sure it meets one of three criteria, domestically um, sourced and processed, organic, sustainably processed, and then naturally dyed. And 
so literally I have this huge list of domestic companies and any company that meets those criteria that I've been getting in contact with. But, you know, in the midst of that research, contacting many, many different companies, it's kind of crazy how many even smaller companies that have this fiber that they're dying have no idea where it actually comes from. And so, oh yeah, yeah I'll, they'll like go away. They'll be like, okay, I'll get back to you, you know, and they'll go check. And then I get an email back and it's like, you know, they're learning for the very first time, not only where it's, uh, you know, processed, but where it's sourced from. It's been an interesting educational experience for me around that, something I hadn't even thought of even six months ago. Mm. Well, I guess something something that I would love to talk to with you is, is the concept of organic. Um, basically, in Australia, it's just that long goodbye when it comes to wool, um, because in terms of processing um there well i mean processing stop there isn't anyone but organic processing um there isn't really anyone either like in terms of organic dyes and so forth um the best that we can get is there's a place in new zealand that can do that um but they don't have the certification that they can do it to that certification standards Mm -hmm. that's my understanding at least so there is an australian organic yarn company but for me sort of when when I went into actually production with Tan of Wool, I was sort of like, what's important to me? What are the sort of values that I'm going to have? What are the companies that I am going to sort of look up to and go, okay, here's a way that they've done it, and that makes sense to me, so that's the way that I'm going to do it too. So so there were a few people that I was sort of looking at, um, I guess in Australia and around the world. And, I mean, <laughs> the obvious one was the Downey family with, with the other things that they they're doing in terms of, um, I guess the thing to understand is that they're not just, yeah, farmers in the traditional sense of farming. Um, they are very much entrepreneurs who happen to have a farm and they're using that as a sort of a starting, a launching pad basically, uh, in that um, Peter Downey has actually got a project underway at the moment of having one of Australia's largest private windmill farms. Uh, on his farm, so that'll be generating enough energy to basically power um, Hobart, if not a larger part of Tasmania. So that sort of thing is basically unheard of, but it's it's an interesting way of looking things, of looking at things. And I guess I wanted to do that as well. Of am I just producing wool here, or what what am I really doing? Um, and I, that to me was the important thing. Of it was more than just about um, here's another yarn label. It was more looking at the actual history of here's 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 a wool that nobody knows about, but it's also about genetic diversity, which I thought was really important to me, and also processing as locally as possible. Even in the end, um, I had no idea when I first started the project that I'd be going to New Zealand, but that's just the way that things have turned out. But it was more when I was looking at that organic sort of certification and whether or not I should go down that sort of path, I was just like, well, if you look at someone like Joel Fallerton, for example, uh, who is uh, quite a well-known farmer in the U.S. and who's come over to Australia several times, and um, he's a farmer who uh, the Downies sort of understand and relate to as well, and they carry a lot of the same principles uh, with their farming principles. Um, it, it was a case of white mother. 
Mm-hmm. Um, we, we really need to go down that path. As long as we're honest and transparent about what we do, there's things that matter. Um, and I sort of had a look at, I've, you know, with a general sort of interest in health and so forth as well, um, another company that sort of sprang up to me was Vega, who do like vegan um, food and supplements and so forth, who are based in Canada, I think. Um, they had a really interesting way of looking at things as well, is that they're not organic certified, but if they can do it sort of like as as local and um, sourcing direct from the farmer as possible, that was good enough for them. And that was the case with me as well. If I could sort of source direct from the farmer and I know exactly what's going on, I'm happy. I think the most important part is transparency. One of the reasons we came up with those three criteria is there's a lot of companies or, or you know small farms or small mills, I guess, that have fiber that we kind of can get that 100% transparency with them because it's produced here or, you know, it's their own sheep or, uh, you know, they know exactly where they're getting their uh, fiber from. But, you know, there's certain domestic brands that, you know, maybe they do get their fiber from other countries. And so that's not their fiber. It's not personally them. They're not there. They're not witnessing everything. And so some of these companies, you know, the way that they know that their fiber is humanely processed and and using little if no chemicals at all is through that organic certification. And so I feel the same way as you. It's like, you know, it's just like when you go to the farmer's market. One of the things I always ask, they don't have a sign that says that their produce is organic. You know, I just ask them and they're like, you know, we, we follow all the guidelines. It's pretty much organic. We just didn't pay for the certification. Awesome. I'll buy your produce. That's great. I think the whole organic thing, I, I love it. I try to eat as much organic as possible and, and purchase organic clothing and whatnot. But at the same time, it, just do your research and pay attention to you know how it is made and and try and get in and get that transparency you just mentioned why bother I think that that could resonate with a lot of people yeah no there's there's certainly a lot of issues there that need to be looked at and I mean just recently it came up with someone um that they sort of said to me, oh, look, you know, I'm I'm not getting the usual colors that I get when I'm dying with Cormo. What's up with that? It must be something to do with the breed. And I was just like, well, what else are you dying with? And they mentioned a, a company that they actually source from the UK. And I was just like, well, yeah, you're using Chinese processed yarn. What do you expect? Mm-hmm. Um, because that was the thing. Um when when you can, it's like trying to compare apples and oranges. Of when you, this is the thing with Chinese processed yarn, you don't really know sort of what chemicals and so forth are used on that, and um, the processes that the wool has been to that sort of strip the wool of its um, sort of, of of what wool is basically. Um, and this is the thing. Um, so many indie dyes in particular use. Superwash Merino, and I mean that was the yarn that I started out with. And let me say, it's 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 a sad thing because the stuff when you actually go to dye with it is awesome because it'll give you these incredible, insane, intense colours and so forth. So I guess does that mean that in the future that this is what we have to look forward to? Of we we simply have to change sort of like our own palettes in much the same way that we've 
done with food, if we're understanding that perhaps sugar isn't the best thing to be eating, you know, at every meal, and perhaps, you know, we need to have a look at how we can cut back and what else we can eat and sort of have a look at the way that our taste buds might need to change or will change if we simply ditch sugar from our diet. And is it going to be a similar thing with our tastes in in fashion and colour when we actually have a look at what we're using and what we're wearing and what the impacts of that are? I feel like as a society, we try to take things and we try to mold them to fit them into this box that we feel like it should be. And we process things like everything in our life nowadays is either a process or is processed. I don't know. We need to learn to embrace the natural state of things. I recently did a bunch of natural dyeing with my friend Annie and it was my first real experience diving into all the different things that you do to make these incredible colors and the colors are very vibrant but they're neutral they're definitely not a neon color or you know these kind of crazy rainbow that are gorgeous they're from nature like we literally walked around her property grabbed different plants that she was really familiar with the colors were incredible and people would just learn to embrace it because if they just saw that color in a store, they might not be attracted to it, but it's the story behind it. That was a native plant that was five feet out someone's door and someone used it to dye this wool that came 50 miles away. And this is all so sustainably created, but also it's beautiful. The story is what makes it beautiful, not only just how it looks or it feels. When I first really got into knitting, I gravitated some, towards some of those companies that, you know, touted super wash merino and having a kid, okay, that's what I should do. And I, I didn't know, you know, and so my, like half my stash is full of this stuff. And, and while I love it, you know, I think moderation, which is what something you just touched on, but maybe you could talk a little bit more yeah. about why, why is it so harmful, not only to just the fiber, but to the environment? when it goes through the superwash process, it's basically similar to hair when it goes through the perming process. And that's what you're basically doing as if you're doing something kind of similar to if you're applying, first of all, you've got to strip it back, but then you need to apply a chemical and keep it that way. So what happens with the superwash process of what you're doing is um, wool naturally has scales, which enables it to felt. And what you're doing with the superwash process is removing those scales and then giving it a special treatment, like a, a sort of a smoothing treatment to sort of keep it that way. Um, speaking with another lady recently, the way that she sort of put it to me was that what they basically do is they coat it in plastic. Um, so it does have a special sort of polymer coating to it, uh, which means that it's, it's a lot different as well. It means that um, when you actually go to dye with it, it's a lot more absorbent um, and it can take colour a lot better. But when you actually um, go to wash with it as well, like if you actually try and felt with Superwash Merino, uh, nothing happens. If anything, it uh, it might sort of stretch out a little bit, but that's about it. Um, but it basically does completely change the actual structure of wool itself. 
Um, and if you compare the two, if you put them side by side, um, they they feel different, they react different. Um, the, the wonderful properties that wool is meant to have, um, such as the things of, you know, it's meant to be compostable and biodegradable and all that kind of stuff. If you try doing that with superwash in comparison to normal uh, untreated wool, I'm willing to bet, even though I haven't done the experiment myself, you're going to get two very different mm -hmm. results. So, yeah. But basically, the deal with it is um, the chemical used in the process are, are not kind to the environment. Um, I do know that um, basically, superwash treatment itself does not occur in Australia. As far as I know, it's been banned because the chemicals and their effects on the waterways here. Um, we, we have quite um, strong laws in terms of what is and isn't allowed in waterways, and that was one of the reasons why it did go overseas. And that's one of the reasons why China is one of the major areas is because of that superwash process and because of the chemicals used and they have much lax laws over there in terms of, for example, um, water in China can be a different colour on different days according to what um, fashion houses are dyeing their fabrics. Mm -hmm. So it, and that's the sort of the, the dye runoff goes into their waterways. Um, that's that's not unusual in right. China. So yeah, their actual quality of water, along with quality of air and so forth, uh, yeah, they're all major major issues. Do you feel like this is a pretty controversial topic amongst processors, dyers, or whatnot? I think it will be more once once someone actually comes along and lifts off the lid. If we if we do get that sort of Eric Slosser fast food nation type story about what is actually going on, yeah, mm -hmm. I do. But right now, not so much. I think people are more sort of attracted to the qualities, or I think it's just something that you just deep down your bones, you know. It makes sense that you go and buy it direct from the farmer rather than hit the supermarket and buy mm -hmm. junk food. You don't have to have someone tell you that, but because we have, it, it just helps things along. And I think it's a case that these are intrinsically, we know that these things are wrong, but we're not really going to do that much about it until someone actually comes along and says, you know, this, this, these are the things that have happened. If you continue to do this, this is what's going to happen and we can't mm -hmm. continue. Um, so who's going to do that? I'm not quite sure. I can tell you that it's definitely not the Australian government. Who <laughs> It might be. I think it is a case of, yeah, starting out small. I think it is a case of people like me and you, Ashley, of... You know, people who are starting out these small companies and letting people know that thing, things are different and here's how and here's why what we're doing is special. It makes me even more excited about what we're doing. If I could be even more excited than I already am. Last year, I did a ton of research on organic cotton. And for very similar reasons, I decided that in 2014, I would pledge just to myself that I would not buy any clothing that wasn't organic or sustainably processed because it particularly okay. cotton is so hard to trace down the sources. I feel like with yarn, it's a, it's not easy, but it's a little bit easier because a lot of these domestic fibers you can track down, you know, through local forms. But so in 2014, I had pledged to do this and, uh, and it's the hardest thing. I literally have bought maybe 
under 10 pieces of clothing in almost a year now. And just using what I have, basically recognition of what we're using, what we're creating with, what we're purchasing and just being conscious of it. I've read some of your blog posts and and just some of your journey. Talk a lot about the Australian wool industry. One phrase in particular I think I read somewhere was that this this one gentleman said they wouldn't apply tax dollars or something to developing more domestic processing. I think your reply was we might have to do this without the Australian wool industry. And I was just curious what your thoughts are on that because I think that was a couple of year old article that I read. What developed since then or what's the current state? Yep. Uh, nothing's changed. So that was uh, Stuart, who is the CEO of Australian Wool Innovation and uh, continues to be. And yeah, um, definitely. That's the thing. It's, it's not going to change. Um, one of the reasons is, I think one of the really interesting things about the Australian wool industry is that what we're seeing with AWI, which is funded by the government and by a, a tax of sorts with farmers, is that the people who are actually on the board, <laughs> um, a lot of them are, are involved in this offshore industry. So, of course, what are the benefits of, of local processing? And the thing is, when if you want to start local processing, where do you start? You start small. Who's interested in small processing in Australia? It's certainly not these huge, large sort of government organisations. So it's just a case of you just need to start small and do it yourself. So I think a really lovely example of this is um, a, a friend of mine, Marcus Westbury, um, saw that Newcastle, one of the big sort of towns in Australia, um, was basically um, crumbling. The, you go down the main street and there's nothing there. There were no shops that were open. There was nothing. There was just like this desolate mall. And he was just like, what can I do about this? And he sort of saw that it was this it was this issue sort of not so much of hardware of all these shops being shut, but it was more of software of of the sort of intellectual property and getting people in doing interesting things, which would then sort of rebirth that. And um, that's been a massive success. So Marcus is currently over in Detroit, of all places, um, seeing how similar ideas are working over in there. So I mean, if it can, if it can work in Newcastle and around Australia and in the US, um, you know, it's an example that things that start small can work. And I think it's a case of what the Australian industry really needs now is for that sort of small processing at least to sort of get at least get started but I think there needs to be a lot more larger processing and I don't see why we can't sort of start relatively large so long as there is some kind of kickstart behind it. For example, I do know that in the US you do actually have a machine wash wool facility over there that's funded by the army because that's one of the requirements of their uniforms. So I think that's really interesting, and that's something that I would love to see here. At least if you're going to do machine wash, um, do it properly and do it in such a way that we can apply science and technology so that it's done in a way that can be environmentally sustainable. You know, get the worst things and make them better rather than just you know, shoving them mm -hmm. under the carpet and saying that it's not happening. Obviously, you're super passionate about all of this. Yeah. But when you think about your role, whether it be big or small in this um, movement, I guess I'll call it, 
What do you see as like your next steps or, or what do you want to do? Well, I guess this is the thing. I have no choice. It's basically a case for me. I feel like it's a choice of go big or go home. Um, because the thing is, there is no processing in Australia at the moment. So the ends I said I can go with New Zealand. Um, the minimums are looking like at least one to two tons each time I want to process. Um, and certainly with the downies, it's a case of you know there is no lack of wool there. Uh, so I think it's just a case of I just need to sort of seize the opportunity. Um, I just need to plan and to um, get a sort of methodology in place, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, one of the main things that I am interested in is I've already started out with the pilot of doing a 20% grey, and now basically it's a case of getting more of those colours happening naturally, so it'll be the 20, 40, 60, 80% blends. So that's, that's the next step, but it's also looking at dyeing. Um, in terms of natural dyeing at scale, Gosh. I'd rather sort of go maybe, <laughs> yeah, baby steps. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that I would love to see happen was that, uh, I mean, in short term, I'm more than happy to go. Look, I'm I'm going to die chemically at a manufacturing level that I can live with short term. Long term, um, it would be great to see something set up in Tasmania that is an actual sort of, it's a wool store, a dye house, a retail area, and a, a workshop area as well. Something like that would be, you know, the ultimate dream. Mm. But it's a matter of baby steps yeah. towards that sort of thing. But I think that that could be something that could be viable in Tasmania, and it could be seen as being sort of like a... A tourist attraction type thing as well. Yeah. Um, Tasmania is gorgeous part of the world. It's simply stunning down there. They have one of Australia's highest unemployment rates, uh, and they certainly are sort of starting to do the renew sort of thing down there. So they've just started with. Um, at one of their pots, I think. So they're doing, they are doing a renewed project down there. So I'd certainly love to get stuck in and see, particularly in a rural area, even if it is, yeah, if it were off wall or somewhere like that, it's just seeing what could happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I mean, while, while there's certainly a lot of, there's a lot of things against you, but I think it's also a case of, let's look at the positives here. Of, there certainly is an interest in wool and rare breeds and so forth. There certainly is an interest in natural dyeing and so forth that's happened a lot recently. Um, there's an interest in provenance, there's an interest in locally made and so forth. So let's see where we can go with that. I couldn't say it enough. Just listening to your passion about this gets me so excited just to not only support you and like your endeavors, but also just share this with everyone because a lot of people don't know what the first step is. Or once they learn about everything that we've been talking about, they're not sure what the next step is or how, you know, maybe they can't have their own mill or they can't, you know, have their own flock. What part can they do in it? And I think there's so many different levels and, you know, it, it's going to be the voice of a few that preaches to the many what next steps we have to take as a community to make this have an impact. Mm, absolutely. One thing that you just said 
you know, about the dyeing is natural dyeing, while incredible, you're right, like on a commercial scale, I don't even know if there's a means right now to make that possible. But there's a couple different companies just in the US here, like OWL and a couple others that have GOTS uh, certified dyeing processes. So they're more sustainable while, you know, chemical dyes, you know, they have a more eco-friendly process and, and less harsh residual chemicals on the dye or on the yarn. So I think not going natural is obviously not, you know, the end of the world, but mm. I guess for me, it's, it's not so much about dye, it's more about water is the big one. Um, something to understand is that when you are dying on a commercial level, the I'm not sure of the correct term. I think it's the dye-liquor ratio. Um, I think that's the sort of technical term. I could be wrong here. I think it's something along those lines, but it's basically around 30 to 1. So that is um, 30 litres of water are required to dye 1 kilo of wool. Mm -hmm. That's that. That's seen as being really good. And to me, I'm just like, you need 30 litres of water to dye a kilo? <laughs> what is this? What are you doing? And I mean, in Australia, Dydalica is more, um, I know that for one company, it's 200 to 1. And I've, yeah, I was just speechless when I found out that, that one. And I was incredible. like, I'm never buying this down again. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> it varies widely, but it's also, even if you have an indie dyer which is using the most hideous yarn and... Um, the most horrible dyes and so forth, but they're doing it in a couple of buckets and they're doing it in a thoughtful way. I mean, yeah, it's very much, there's so many things to lay up. Mm -hmm. what, what is it? And I guess, yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point. I have seen in the US that they are doing, um, they have got things in place of recycling water and so forth when, when they are dying. So I think it's really good that um, that is coming to the forefront with mills. So I'm looking for seeing more of that happening worldwide when it comes to wool processing because these are the things that people aren't talking about. Um, when it's wool and it's sustainability, they often go to the source of, you know, the problem is sheep and methane. It's not at all. It's, it's processing mm -hmm. and it's also um, what consumers do with wool when they actually get it. It's how you take care of it. It's how you wash it. It's how you dry it. And I guess that's the thing with machine wash. If you're putting it in a washing machine, that's using energy and so forth. Whereas if you just hand wash it in a bucket and you just take it out, roll it in a towel and leave it to dry rather than chuck it in a tumble dryer, completely different beast over the life cycle of that garment. Right. So these are the things that we need to keep in mind as consumers and as people in the wool industry. Mm -hmm. You know, I, man, your knowledge is far beyond mine, but just... <laughs> just I know nothing. Well, <laughs> Seriously, when you get, you know, it's amazing when you deal with the people in the industry, you know, these crusty old guys in there, you know, you have grandchildren who are just lecturing me on, you know, these are the things that, these are the ways that things work, lady. Um, yeah, I know nothing. Really, I know nothing. Um, yeah, the Excel spreadsheets that you go through when you get a ton of wool that give you all the different sort of, because it goes through testing with, with when you buy a ton. And yeah, I was just sitting there going, I, I, I have no idea what this means. So you have to get someone to talk you through the whole thing. But yeah, to 
enthusiastic. And when I think about everything that I, I want to and that I need to learn, you know, as we're building our mill, it's easy to get overwhelmed. But at the same time, it's like, yeah, where do I start? There's so many specific areas. And, and one of the areas that I've really decided just to prioritize and start out is that whole water waste during just scouring. I had a really amazing conversation with a local um, woman here in California named Sally Fox, and she grows uh, naturally colored organic cotton. And she also has Romney sheep Anyway, so she... Is she provided to um, a vote for keeping warm? Is that where I know her name from? I know her from somewhere. She is a huge part of the fiber shed here in California. So her name pops up everywhere. You know, I was sitting down and I was talking to her and I was like, what is your biggest pain point? A producer that's trying to get your wool processed. And she goes the whole certification route for her wool and her cotton. And the scouring and and the processing, not only do we not you know they can't use all these chemicals they have to get the vegetable matter out which is so hard to get out not using harsh chemicals or or harsh processes but also the amount of water that's getting used here in California we're in a major drought right now anyways that's a whole another crazy long topic but just listening to her about that it's really started to come together and then what you're saying now it's just affirmation that this is a really important topic and and one that I feel confident is a good place for me to start <laughs> with my with my yeah. minimal knowledge as of now so <laughs> <laughs> yeah no it's good to have that conversation but um I think yeah in an email to you my my advice to you is start making yarn do it Fleet your sheep before you have a meal, start making yarn. Okay, I'm going to buy a ton. I mean, I had a little bit of experience, (laughs) but yeah, not enough. Start making yarn. And this is the beauty of it in the U.S., and I am so jealous, and you are so lucky because you don't need to buy a ton like I have to. And you can start out incredibly small. As far as I'm aware, you might even be able to start out as small as even as tiny as a fleece, mm-hmm. it might be kind of tricky getting that on the spinning mill, but um, I certainly do know that there are scours and small operators over there that can do that kind of thing. But it's more, I think, the actual thing of working with people and learning about the supply chain process and what to do when things go wrong and how to communicate with people and how to ensure that you get the product that you want at the end. Mm-hmm. Those things are gold that no one can really teach you. You just have to yeah, yeah. Off the deep end. It's a tough one. You had talked about this in your email, and yeah. while I'm looking for an excuse to buy a ton of wool, um, you're right. There are there. <laughs> no, 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 no. Take it <laughs> Yeah, there's a couple great mills um, near here that do. They'll do a fleece um, into roving. Yeah, that's what you need. There's another mill that'll do Perfect. a fleece you know, and spin it. So I'm pretty sure you and I, we could probably spend some days talking, not just hours. But uh, I thank you so much. I just in this short conversation, I've learned enough to pick your brain about a bunch more. Uh, Look, my pleasure. Um, Thank you so much for taking the time. I'm really interested in seeing how this podcast pans out and who you talk to and what what sort of information they're going to impart to you as well. And look, if there's anything else I can do for you, by all means, let me know.
Our giveaway this week is sponsored by Stash, a local yarn shop that specializes in natural fibers and is based in Corvallis, Oregon. One of the favorite yarns of our first guest, Jess, is the fiber company's Canopy, so we're giving away two skeins. To enter this giveaway, visit the giveaway post on Instagram at Wolfful and tag a friend in the comments. You can also enter by leaving a comment on today's episode's blog post at Wolfful.com. In December, we'll be starting the very first Woolful Knit Along, a little woolens hat pattern designed by myself using the amazing ton of wool Cormo yarn. And tomorrow, I am thrilled to say the Woolful Mercantile will be opening shop. Here you'll be able to find ton of wool yarn in both fingering and Aran weights, along with special pattern and yarn kits, including this Knit Along's hat pattern. I wanted to make sure and thank today's sponsor again, Fringe Supply Company. Don't forget to share fringesupplyco.com with your loved ones this holiday season. As a hard-to-buy-for person myself, my family appreciates knowing they can't go wrong here. The biggest of thanks to everyone involved in this week's episode. Jess, Kylie, Karen, Sonia, Andy, Nikki, and Sonia. I hope you'll join me each week as we talk and learn from more fascinating fiber folk. For podcast notes and transcription, visit wolfhole.com. If you're interested in being a part of this podcast, make sure to shoot me an email at hello at Have a wonderful Thanksgiving.